right, everyone. So we have the Counterpints Taster Series number two. Uh, we have Adam, who's a brewer from Newport Brewing and Distilling up in Rhode Island. And coming on for, I believe, her third appearance is Kristen, who is uh, who works in the lab over at Foothills in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. How are you guys? Doing great. Happy to be here. Doing great. Perfect. And... Kristen said she would not be able to check in a beer, but I know Adam wanted to. So, Adam, go ahead with your check-in. I, I am uh, drinking one of the uh, beers we make over at Newport. It's under our Radiant Pig brand. It's the It Ain't Easy. It's a double IPA. We have very light, almost too easy drinking, and it's got a nice little tropical kick, very low bitterness. I love this one. Yeah, it does sound pretty good. Um, <sighs> I'm going to go with another Winston-Salem brewery, uh, Fiddle and Fish. They're Oktoberfest. They're Marzen style. Never had it before. Not going to lie, I don't have high hopes for it, but uh, we'll give it a shot. <laughs> well, you know, you can only go up from there. Yeah, it's not, it's not bad. It's not great, but it's not, it's not the worst I ever had. So, what do you go? Too bad. It's not like the, that red currant beer. That one was so good. Yeah, that Ooh, one. They, that, and they had that <laughs> Pick and Pale Ale, which was another one of their really good ones. But they've been... They've been killing it with the sours lately. Yeah, they make uh, they make some great sours. And I remember I talked to them one time, and they do like a uh, they have a yeast strain that sours it while it ferments, but it still ferments in kind of like an ale time frame, so like two weeks. So they kind of have a different approach to souring instead of being like a kettle sour. It's pretty wild, but that black currant beer was amazing. I drank that for a couple weeks straight when that was out. Nice. Yeah, that's definitely one of the better ones. I've had from them. All right. And with that, we'll just get into the, to the meat of this uh, interview here. Um, I guess we'll start with kind of a, a home run here. Um, Adam, why don't you just tell us about yourself real quick and kind of your, your background in the brewing industry? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I'm from all over. I'm from North Carolina originally, uh, same place uh, where y'all are, Winston-Salem. And I went to school down in Charleston, South Carolina. I uh, went to school for something that had nothing to do with brewing, marketing, and I, uh, it fell through a few things, uh, worked in a few industries. And then when I, a few years ago, ended up walking to a brewery, uh, connected with the brewmaster. And he basically brought me on as an apprentice. I started working for him. And then uh, I ended up moving back to North Carolina, worked there at Foothills for a year. And now I'm up in Rhode Island working for Newport Craft Brewing and Distilling. I'm actually working with my original brewmaster again. He's from up here, so that's been pretty exciting. And uh, now I'm working as a brewer and a cellarman up here. So we've been uh, on a big rebuild right now. Uh, we rebranded recently, and we've got a new team, and we're expanding and doing a build-out this winter. So it's been a fun, exciting project, and uh, I've been fortunate to find a fun exciting situation in the middle of covid too so that was a very exciting turn of events <laughs> even with covid they're still they're still planning with that expansion everything's still as scheduled yeah we've been uh we have they've kind of had a big plan for a while and we've got financial backers that have been on this project for a while so we've been able to fortunately go through uh covid okay and we're a distribution brewery first so We've still been able to get push out our can sales, and we have our own canning line. So that's really been a, a big saving grace and allowed us to continue producing. And on top of that, we do have our distillery. So we've got 
hundreds and probably more like thousands and thousands of square feet of barrels with liquor in them. So I know that that's been something that we've been able to use to generate revenue. And even at one point, I think we did hand sanitizer uh, right before I came on earlier this spring. So they've they've been keeping busy during all of this craziness. That's awesome. Yeah, the hand sanitizer um, everywhere. I saw on your Instagram Great, Adam, that yeah, you guys were putting in new tanks. And I was like, oh, man, right here in the middle of COVID, continuing with the expansion. So that's super exciting oh, yeah. for you guys. It was very exciting. They, uh, it was a new 60-barrel fermenter. It's a little bit smaller than some of the 400-barrel tanks at Foothills. But yeah, I don't just get a little. freaked out as much when I get on top of it. So that's always nice. Yeah, that's a positive. So, and uh, is it one where you can reach the manway from the ground? Or do you still have to get up on a ladder? I still have to use a ladder. Uh, so I do miss the scissor lift. The scissor lift was very fun to drive, but uh, it's a—it's uh, just high enough to where you need like a big ladder, but not uh, not quite to where you need to go all the way up on a scissor lift. So that it's a nice, nice in between. Very nice. And Kristen, I don't—I can't remember if we did a, a full introduction for you, but if we did, I apologize. And if not, then why don't you just go ahead and introduce yourself as well and kind of give your background in this industry. All right, sure. So yeah, and I, I think when we were at Lake Norman, I just kind of did a brief overview. I initially went to college at Coastal Carolina for biochemistry. And when I graduated, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. So I, I started bartending actually back in Winston-Salem, where I'm from um, and live now. And I worked for a bar that had about 40 craft beers on tap. And that got me really interested in the industry to begin with, trying different things, observing the different styles. And uh our owner actually let me become summertime manager. And that's when I met distributors and different people along the way. And, you know, asked some of the guys, how do I get into this industry? How do I, you know, have a job like you guys or work in production or whatnot? And they told me, you know, there's community college uh, certifications and then App State University up in the mountains of Boone also has a program that you already have a lot of credits probably towards and you could look into that. So I applied to App State. I got in six days, uh, I went and from having um, all the biology and chemistry classes essentially done, I was able to graduate in a year and a half and pretty much just took like distilling, wine production and beer production. Uh, just some, some fun other business courses that I hadn't gotten with my first degree. And uh, so from there, having the education side, but no practical work, I pretty much got like a summer seasonal job at a Beach Mountain Resort in uh, Beach Mountain, very close to Boone. So for the summer, right after I graduated, I was the assistant brewer there, uh, working on a very small three-barrel system. Um, And then uh, after that, when the season ended, I decided, hey, let's go try out wine. So I moved to California, uh, worked a wine harvest, decided wine was not my thing. And the fires essentially brought me back to North Carolina, where I continued to apply to stuff and went, took a brewing job in Charlotte, North Carolina, at a pretty small, I would consider it a nano brewery, about a thousand barrels a year, um, working on a 15 barrel brew house. And I was the assistant brewer there and tried to help them with their quality stuff and like build a lab, different stuff like that. Funding wasn't the best. And so then I applied to this job in Foothills, working in quality management. And so, yeah, I am the evening quality manager at Foothills. So, well, there you have a very important job. <laughs> And straight from a professional, wine sucks. There you go. It's dirty grape juice. It is dirty, sticky grape juice. Ew. I've been it my whole life. It's the worst. All right. Um, so that's kind of the introduction part. That's the boring part. Now I'll get to the fun stuff. Kristen, I'll start with you this time. Let's go with another 
I guess the easy one. Your favorite beer style to brew, and then also the best beer you think you've ever brewed. Okay, so favorite beer style to brew. After you've brewed so much, it is nice to have like an easy Kolsch or Pilsner that you're louder, it doesn't take long, and your spars work the way it's supposed to, and there's no sort of stuck fermentation, and it just goes from your mash to your kettle, and it boils so quickly, and, you know, very little hops are needed to be added or anything. I mean, uh, working in the industry at home brewing, it's kind of like fun to experiment with all those fun ingredients and stuff, but when you've worked in your brew house and you know what your brew house is made of and how much work goes into it, um, just brewing something really easy like Kolsch or maybe a brown ale or something that has very little wheat or oats and not a ton of hops. Those are kind of your preferred to brew. And then the, the funnest one I think I ever made uh, was probably the first New England IPA I ever tried to make. It, it took three attempts to really get the flavor profile that I wanted. Understanding how bitter, how easy it is to turn your beer and, and get that bitter character so strongly. It, it was really challenging to like literally pretty much not put hops in it and figure out at the end in your whirlpool add just a little bit and it goes a long way and then just dry hop your beer for the aroma aspect of it. So yeah, but that beer was, it was fun because it was such a challenge and, you know, watching people taste it in the, in the tasting room and getting their opinion was a really fun part of that. Interesting. So basically you just like to be lazy and not make good, challenging, interesting beers. So you're just like the rest of us. Awesome. <laughs> There's a lot to be said for that, especially on the industrial scale. I certainly yeah. know where you're, uh, yeah. where you're coming from. You're like, what? That's all the hops I have to add and only one type of hop? What? Right? No, <laughs> like, no rice holes? Oh my gosh. Fantastic. Adam, same questions for you. So my favorite that I brewed was one of my early beers that I did. Uh, it was a kettle sour and it was a, uh, a raspberry coconut kettle sour. And it was a lot of fun um, because I got to, let's see, I, it was really just a delicious beer. It was like a very uh, tart, low three, three, four pH, so very acidic, nice like coconut fat, fat on the tongue. It was just a perfect sour for the summertime. And we uh, brewed it when I was working down in Charleston at a little brewery called Fatty's Beer Works. And it was the Doom Flamingo. We did it with a band in the area. Um, but a cool, really cool synth rock kind of band that has a uh, few really big musicians. One of the guys from Upreese McGee is in it, but it was just a one of my favorite beers. It was such a thirst quenching kind of beer, and it was one of my early introductions to actually getting to try out making a sour. Then there's a lot of uh, tasting and testing involved in the souring process, and that's honestly probably why I'd say making sours is one of my favorite beers. Beer styles to make as well. There's just a lot of uh, kind of thought and extra steps that go into the process. And it's a really fun procedure. And then there's a lot of uh, kind of personal touch you can put on it in terms of like how sour do you want to take it? And, you know, if you're using a lactoculture that you've pitched and then repitched a few times, uh, you kind of can keep a certain characteristic the flavor to it as well so that kind of it's fun to have like a consistent palette that you'll get because you're using the same sort of culture so there's just some fun dynamics involved with that so i'd say a kettle sour just i guess the sour in general um although there's a lot of styles would probably be my favorite to actually brew hmm, that's that's super interesting i know the 
the sour craze is kind of picked into high gear lately. So that's probably quite a good skill to, to be able to master is to get those sours down. And that one that you were talking about sounds actually really good. And that's coming from a person who's not the biggest sour fan. Well, that's quite a compliment then. <laughs> All right. So I guess kind of similar to the last question, I'm going to, I'm going to flip it around and say, what's your least favorite style of beer to brew? And I kind of have a guess on, on some of the answers that are about to come my way, and I'm going to go ahead and ask it anyway. Kristen, I'll let you start this one. Your least favorite to brew. Oh, gosh. I would say probably my least favorite style to brew is going to be, as a female uh, working on a brew house that has numerous steps, any uh, imperial beer is really difficult, whether that be you know an imperial stout or uh, an imperial IPA or like a higher gravity Bach or something in, in that relation. And it's mostly because uh, the way you get it high gravity, you have to add so much malt sugar for your yeast to ferment it. And you have to start with a really, really strong sugar source. And essentially your mash tun can't handle that. Uh, so you have to add it into your boil kettle and uh, carrying 55 pound bags of what's called DME, which is the malt sugar upstairs. is not the easiest process in the world. So that, that's kicked my butt many times. And uh, also, well, I, I would say it was a really fun beer to make, but it was so challenging. We made a completely gluten-free beer. And traditionally, when you're adding in a whole bunch of malt, you're going to put it through your mill and have it go across and into your mash. But being gluten-free, if we put it into our mill, the grain into the mill, it would have picked up all like the gluten proteins left in uh, what's called the auger that transports it across the building, really. And so we had to... to fill it by hand and we had to mash it in by hand so we essentially had to like fill bins with a forklift and like hand dump it into the mash and I have pictures of how big of a mess it made but it, it was a really like exciting fun thing but I would wish it really on anybody that was one of the hardest processes I've gone through so wow Kristen can I ask so when uh, you made that gluten-free beer, did you were you in the tasting room screening people, like making sure, like, do you actually have a gluten intolerance, or are you just on the trend right now? Like, I uh, no, actually, <laughs> no, because it was so expensive to make that we literally were just trying to get people to buy it. By the end, its shelf life was, you know, going downhill because essentially it's it's like bird seed. It's like millet. Um, there's oats in it. And the cost of it was almost twice as much as any of our other beers. And so by the end, it was just kind of like giving it away. But, but it was amazing right. to see people like in the tasting room that would try it and be like, oh, because it, it was kind of a brown ale in color. It's like, oh, like I had no idea this was gluten-free. So it, it was cool to see that. I think an experienced beer drinker could tell, like, I think this is a little off. But, you know, someone uh -huh. that's not super experienced really you know enjoyed it and we got good reviews from it so that's awesome yeah that's i mean that sounds like it's it's just so much work so it makes definitely makes a lot of sense why you know a brewer's favorite beer is something that doesn't involve a lot of steps i think i think most people can sympathize with that i remember i don't know why this crossed my mind when you were talking about different styles you've made but were you the one who was telling me about something called an icebox? Was that what it was called? Yes, I have made an icebox before. So essentially you take, uh, we made a doppelbox and put some of it in a keg and froze it and then transferred it from one keg to another keg with what was left. Essentially, when, when you think of like, you know, liquor in your freezer doesn't freeze because the alcohol content is so high that the density is low, actually. 
um, so it doesn't freeze like water does. So essentially we do that with beer and, you know, the gravity of the beer and a doppelbock is more like, I think it was between nine and 10%. So you do have to let it thaw a little bit because you're not going to get anything coming across. But the, the beer that you end up getting is about three quarters the amount you started with. And uh, the gravity is close to a whole percent higher. So uh, oh, yeah. really interesting process, really difficult to do, really heavy to put kegs into a freezer because we had like kind of a base freezer, you know, that you'd have in somebody's house. So we lifted a half barrel keg into it, two of them, and then transferred into another keg. So I actually have a, a funny story about, I don't know if this is true or not, because it was told to me by a friend in a beer group who loves to spin a good tail. But he was telling me about the, one of the first bots was because uh, it's a German style and they were doing like a, a, a cool shit sort of beer where they put the beer, you know, in like a long trough, push yeah. it outside to cool it before they pitch the yeast. And the, uh, the employees of the brewery did not prepare and bring it in overnight. And so it froze. And so the uh, brewmaster kind of as a little punishment was like, well, you guys ruined this beer because it's frozen, so you have to chip away the ice and you guys have to drink whatever's in here. And thus, the ice box was born. I don't know that that's true, but it's a pretty cool story. Yeah, I've never looked up the history of how, how it all began, but that is a cool story. That is awesome. It sounds like, I know, I've never had one. Um, it's definitely on my list. I've tried a lot of different beer styles, and that one appears to be number one on my list now after hearing quite a bit about it. All right. Next question. Uh, this is always like a fan favorite. You can both answer this one. Adam, I'll start with you this time. What's the oddest ingredient um, you've ever brewed a beer with? Ooh, oddest. So it's something that I feel like wasn't too out of place when I was living in Charleston. But when I tell people that I've done it in like Rhode Island or in North Carolina, they kind of look at me weird. But uh, in, at Fatty's, we made an oyster stout. So we actually, we had a grant tank, like just a little tank that we loudered through and, uh, you know, transferring from the mash tun over to the kettle. And when we transferred all that work through, we put a bushel of oysters in there. And so we uh, made an oyster stout, which essentially everyone thinks you get uh you're trying to get like a salty flavor from it, but really you're trying to get calcium out of the oyster shells and that calcium adds to the mouthfeel of the beer. So it has, when you drink it, it'll, it, you can get a beer, you know, that might taste like thin or waterly, watery, excuse me. And uh, that calcium, even if it was beer was a little thinner, it would kind of make it coat your mouth. So it gives a little bit more body to the beer. But that was probably the most interesting thing I've ever brewed with. Yeah. I think I've had an oyster stout before in nope. Charlotte at Free Range, and it was freaking awesome. So, yeah, I've never made one, though. Yeah, I've, I've definitely had one, too. I know I have gone the uh, prior brewing, which used to be in Greensboro there. A, uh, fall, they've fallen victim to the pandemic here, but they made a shrimp IPA that I had a taster of that was just what you'd imagine, a fishy beer, and it was absolutely disgusting. Uh, yeah, I feel like that's a, I respect anyone who goes for it, but that's definitely like a tough one to hit. And I feel like you're just appealing to a niche market at that too, you know, like someone who's going to want to drink a beer that actually tastes like shrimp. That's pretty wild. A hundred percent agree. Yeah. That's a very, that's a very small number of people. I think that was one where people just want to do, say they've tried it and not actually drink it to enjoy it. I don't know many people who would get another round of those. <laughs> Chris, right. Your turn. 
oddest ingredient you ever brewed a beer with. All right. So for background for this in Charlotte, Unknown Brewery has what's called Strange Brew every year. Um, and they ask all the breweries that come to brew something super weird and odd. And sadly, I don't think mine is super weird, but I tried my best. I went with the theme for Blue Blaze, which was trail and like hiking and stuff. And so I, I made a trail mix inspired beer. So it was, we called it an Imperial Porter because why not? And it was, I literally added raisins and pretzels and cocoa nibs. And yeah, that was mostly it, I think. And then we used our like house yeast strain that we always used for stuff and it would not ferment it. So that gave a whole whale of issues. And we had this whole like secondary fermentation because it had to be at the beer fest by a certain time and so we had to like rack it over and carve it and everything and so it was just it was a struggle of a beer and some of the other fun ideas that were there someone had sangria in a toilet and literally brought a toilet in and <laughs> drank from a turkey baster uh people had is that for real like, are you serious oh i'm i'm dead serious i'm sure you could look up unknown strange brew and see pictures 100 percent. some wow. people did an asian inspired thing uh, we're literally like people brought in stovetops and we're cooking. But let's see. Another what? brewery did a sweet potato beer that literally they went through their head brewer went through the morning of and cut off like 300 sweet potatoes and hollowed it out and then put the beer as the like sweet potato was the mug and they put like uh, marshmallows and stuff on top. That was really cool. That, um, so that yeah, sounds so, cool. Wow. That yeah, so is, that, be, that, that beer fest is just, like, wow. awesome, and I encourage anyone to go. If they see tickets, typically it's uh, November time-ish at yeah, Unknown Brewing in Charlotte. So They've got a big space, too. Wow, I can't imagine. I hope that toilet was a brand-new one, and even then, that's... that's I did hear so, that it was a brand-new toilet, yes. So, like, how well do they sanitize, like, the bowels <laughs> of a toilet? Like, You know, Adam, I can't say part. how well, but... I did have some of it, so. Oh, Lord. Uh, well, you survived, right? Nothing, nothing I did. happens. So I made it. And what I can say, too, about making a trail mix beer is that, uh, you know, Reasons is a character that comes across in, like, a barley wine or I don't know, occasionally, like, a scotch ale or something, like, has that raisin flavor um, naturally. So, yet, yeah, don't artificially add it because it overpowers everything and it doesn't taste great. So that is not an ingredient I suggest anyone ever use in beer. Wild. Did you put all that stuff in like the mash or? I put it essentially the whirlpool. I whirlpooled it for about 30 minutes and just had it in a bag and just like let it whirl around with it and add some character oh. to it. That was the best okay. way I thought that it would, the flavor would come across. If I added it in the mash, I didn't think yeah. it would come across very well. No, probably wouldn't. And like, it's, I feel like whenever you do that kind of stuff in the mash, 110% for the photo op. Like, either that or you're just trying to pull out whatever you put in there and eat it later, you know? Yeah. We did a little <laughs> a test batch one time where we put these, like, pastries in. So afterwards, I was like, I wonder what this pastry tastes like. It was not good, just for the record. Oh, yes. Yeah, Wooden Robot, what, they have a pastry set out that they put, like, real donuts. It came out last weekend or this weekend or something like that. So, but not in Charlotte to try it, sadly. Oh. Oh, did you say, isn't that, is that part of their Good Morning Vietnam series yeah i think they did the good morning vietnam with donuts yeah gotcha yeah that sounded awesome all right i've only got two more questions the the first one is one that we get a lot of people asking about uh, when we interview different brewers that is 
and I'll, I'll go back and start with Kristen this time. What's your best beer story from working in um, the brewing industry? Oh, the best beer story. Well, the one that makes me laugh uh. the most is uh, we were making a high-gravity beer. I feel like maybe it was the Doppelbach. And uh, typically, like, the lottering process lasts. I don't know, like an hour to two hours. And I waited six hours for this to go across. And there was so much like water on top. It just, it wouldn't flow. It means like the grain bed was too heavy that like it literally wouldn't transfer over to the kettle. And so like, we're doing the best we can. We have like extra rakes in there trying to move stuff around and it's just like settled. And me and my head brewer are so frustrated. And so then we finally get it over to where it needs to be in the kettle and it's boiling and everything. And we grained out with their pickle bins or fish bins or gas bins or I don't know, they're like tall and cylinder. And then they have like a screw lid on top. So that's what we always mashed out into. And so if you have like a nice flow of your grain, it doesn't make a giant mess. But if it's not a good flow, it can go all over your floor. And so that's the situation that happened with me. I was impatient and frustrated with everything happening at, at once and knowing how big of a grain bed this was going to be and how many bins I was going to have to move. And so I went ahead and opened it up before really all the water had gotten out of it, drained out of it. And I ended up with just the biggest mess on the floor I've ever seen. The grain went everywhere. It probably took me close to two hours to clean up fully, shoveling like snow with this grain. And my brewer came over to me and just asked, like, are you okay? And I was like, yep, I'm fixing this myself. I didn't ask for any help. And so all I got essentially from my coworkers was pictures. <laughs> so that's probably one of my, like, frustrating, just so memorable stories of, like, never making that mistake again. And that being patient and waiting for the grain nat or the water naturally to come out of the grain is a better situation than shoveling the floor like it's snow. So that was what I learned from that. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a blast. So just, just to be clear, the head brewer walked over just to ask if you're okay. He didn't ask if he needed a hand. He just wanted to be like, "Are you okay?" Cool. Oh no, I totally think he did. He asked for help, and I was like, "No, I did this. I'm gonna fix it." Christian, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you get kicked out of this uh, mash that I have that I'm working on now. It's a raised up. We have a similar kind of opening, like to how Foothill says, where it's got a hole yeah. in the bottom of the mash tun, except it has a little chute. And we use trash bins because we're only like a 30 barrel brew house. Yeah. So we don't use quite, we use probably about like half to two thirds of the amount of grain to like 1600, we'll call it. And um, <laughs> sometimes the mill, it's a really old mill, and it'll, the mill gap slip and so some of our mashes the mill gap got a little close too closed and it they got powdery and so that same kind of thing happened to oatmeal and you have to use this big old wheel to like spin it and it takes probably like two you spin it like 35 seconds like it's a great bicep workout every day but you have to spin it like that to open it and to close it but when you get like halfway open that's when like it'll be coming out normal and then all of a sudden you'll see oatmeal. And at that point, you're just like watching it overflow onto the floor while you're spinning backwards for like 20 seconds trying to get the door to close. And you're just like, oh, my shoes are filling with oatmeal now. Oh no, all right, 10 right. more seconds, almost there. It's almost closed. Oh boy, oh, this mess is getting bigger. Uh, we actually have a snow shovel for that exact thing. <laughs> Very nice. Yep, it's necessary. It is, ooh. <laughs> All right. And I guess, Adam, I'll, I'll go to you. What is your best beer story? Unless you're going to give me that as your best beer story, an oatmeal 
snowstorm. Yeah. <laughs> I can, uh, I can call it. So one of mine, I'm trying to think like, there's been so many like interesting things that happen. A lot of times it's like, I'm trying to, I have a hard time thinking of it off the top of my head, but like a lot of it is where it just kind of happens on the fly where something will break or not go correctly. And you're in the middle of a brew and you're like, Oh shoot, how do I fix it? And you kind of fly by through your pants. But um, one of my favorites uh, recently, it shows me and one of my coworkers and we were doing a dry hop. And if you've ever seen um, like some of those videos on the internet, like on Instagram or whatever of brewers on top of their tanks with beer shooting out the top, it's because of a dry hop. And it's because uh, we, if you dry hop into an active tank, those uh, hops cause all that CO2 that may be in solution while the fermentation stuff is going, because uh, that's what's being released by the yeast to come out of solution. And it causes the beer to get riled up and kind of foam. And so my buddy was going to go dry hop a tank. And so when you know that the bubbles are coming on the blow-off bucket, and then it's still actively you want to do what's called priming it like put one or two bags in and then get down give it like 10 minutes and let it calm down and then go back and put the rest of the hops up so we he goes up and he climbs up a ladder and it's this big ladder we were talking about earlier Kristen. it's probably like 35 feet in the air and he goes up with the two bags to prime it and i'm down there on the blow off arm and i've got the co2 to put the positive pressure on so when he gets up there, he opens it. I turn the CO2 on and he puts his first bag in really slowly. And then he's looking, he's shining his light. And he's like, I don't think it's moving. Like it looks okay. So he starts with the second bag. And as he's like halfway into it, he's like, oh, like this, I like the beer starting to react. Like it's getting like starting to churn inside the thing. So he like dumps it really fast in there. And he's like, I don't like it's starting to come up, man. It's starting to come up. So I'm like, okay, so I cut the CO2 on the tank and then I blow, like I opened the blow off arm on the tank and he's literally taking the manway and he sprays it down really fast. Like props to him for sanitizing it. Like good, good SOP right there. Sanitizes it and shoves it back down onto the top of the tank. And as he's doing it, I'm watching him and there's hopped up uh, from the dry hop, like the bottom of the bag. You get these green, it looks like green snow on top of the tank. And he's shoving the, to the top of the uh, manhole onto the top of the uh, actual fermenter. And as he's doing it, there's all of this green dust blasting into his face. And I have this funny image in my head of him, like almost like doing CPR, like on a CPR dummy. He's got both of his hands like holding this thing down and it's blasting air and hops in his face and he gets it down and throws the clamp on right as I threw the blow off arm open and like all this air starts churning out of the arm. <laughs> he got down and his entire front torso was covered in green dust and he just had his hair all poofed up. Uh, that, that was probably technically did not happen to me. I like to think kind of a bystander part of it a little bit but that's the that's the funniest one and closest call too that i've had uh working i've definitely had that happen too have you uh, yeah beach mountain which mind you they have a whole new system and, and actual fermenters and stuff but like i said the system we were using was essentially an oversized homebrew system that was three barrels and our fermenters were plastic 
which a beach mountain, oh, wow. it doesn't get super hot, whatever. So we had like two AC window units essentially to keep the room cold. Not very much temperature control. Somehow, yeah, you get some of the phenolic stuff, but I never had a beer go sour on me at all. Um, uh, but yeah, no, we had that happen in one of the plastic fermenters, added hops, and I, it, it took a while. Like I went in the other room, was working and cleaning, and I looked down to like go get the mop and like finish up with the day. And it had exploded everywhere. Like the seal on the top had essentially, it had come out of the seal. It had come out of the blow off on the entire floor was just covered in everything that it could bounce out of it. So wow. it, it was a really nasty mess up or cleanup. So oh, it's, it's always a rough cleanup in brewing when you can't just spray it with a hose into a drain. Like right. that, that is, sure. that's the life right there. When you have that kind of setup where all you have to do is just spray a little hose into a drain, uh, that's, that's the dream. So basically I'm just going to be YouTubing dry hop fails for the rest of the night. There's a, yeah, there's some funny Instagram accounts that have videos of that kind of stuff, but yeah, it's, it, it's pretty crazy. Like some of these videos, Literally, it looks like I jokingly called it Mount Vesuvius one time. It happened to a coworker of mine because it literally just shoots straight out of the tank. Like the pressure is ridiculous, and then you can't if it's open. And once it's kind of started, there's not really much you can do. Like and you're kind of no a helpless <laughs> bystander because like it's coming out very quickly. There's a lot of force behind it. It's not like a a hose, you know, that someone's spraying you. It's like a, a fire hose or something like that. Maybe not quite a fire hose, but it's up there for sure. Yeah, uh, yeah look up. Just, you can look up dry hop fails and also a forklift fails. Those are also pretty entertaining. Oh my gosh! Don't even, <laughs> don't even jest. We so the the place that I'm at right now, we've got some really high stacks, and some of the stacks have been there for a long time. And some of them are like pallets of liquor or pallets of empty kegs, and like. It's just like some of the pallets are broken and stuff. There's a few stacks when I first got there. Were, they're all reorganized now, but man, a few of those were leaning and all the all the rows are so close together. I was uh, you guys can drive the forklift for a little while. Yeah, I'm still new here. Yeah, I'll, I'll stick to brewing. It's cool. I don't mind if you drive the forklift around because in my mind, I was like, I am not knocking over this entire stack of barrels that's got like, who knows how much yeah. rum and stuff in it. Oh, yeah. Those always give me... Watching those forklift fails is always just, like, so cringy and funny. It's, you know, it's like watching the awesome. It's hilarious but cringy at the same time. For sure. For sure. All right. So time for the final question. This is one that we ask everybody. Kristen, I'll start with you. If you could have a beer with one person, the person can be dead or alive, who would that person be and why? So I think I, I am going to go nerdy and stick in the beer world because there, I mean, there are quite a few people in the beer world I would love to have a beer with. But specifically, I would love to have one with Kim Jordan, who is the owner and founder of New Belgium, just being one of the very first craft breweries out there and their story of how they went to Belgium, her and her husband, and were inspired and came back and started the brewery. Uh, I, I think that's really cool. And, and I believe they started in like the early 90s. They like had the idea in the late 80s and, and actually made it happen in the early 90s. And just to, to watch the evolution of the craft beer world and what Colorado's become and Fort Collins has become, I think that would be really interesting to talk to someone uh, and kind of know what, what they thought at the beginning, if, if they ever thought that they would own an operation that's as big as it is. That's a good one. I think 
I, I think that of all the people we've asked that question to, I think that's the first you've given the first answer of someone who does work in the beer industry. We've gotten done some dead. Yeah. Beer. And I can't, I can't yeah. think of her name, but they, they hired a woman in the late nineties who essentially started sours. Like she was the one that started a, a barrel program and started putting beer in barrels and, you know, adding fruit and adding juices and like watching it happen. Like she was one of the very first people in the U.S. And uh, you can like read stuff about her that, you know, the first trials weren't good. And people, you know, had high opinions of this with their drinking, you know, Budweiser and Coors and Miller and stuff like that. Uh, water, essentially, to have something crazy fruity and, you know, off the wall. And so uh, it'd be really cool. You had to sit down with her, too, and to kind of understand uh, how sour, how sour started because they're so prevalent now. Yeah, they, uh, New Belgium, too, is uh, they won the first, uh, I think it was the GABF. It was one of the big beer awards, but they the first year they ever did sours as a category, it was like 1999 or 2000. New Belgium was the beer that took home the prize. Yeah, so, uh, which I have to say, like, no they, didn't, they didn't make the first quote-unquote sours i mean like the original ones are lambics that are over in like belgium and you know he'd give credit where credit is due but like oh, in america like purposely From, for the, exactly for like the modern craft like for the american craft beer scene yeah they and were what kind of the ones who exactly like you know so i i'm a big sour fan and i think it's really cool like i was uh did a presentation on sour the other day but like they're fascinating because they really there's such a history behind them, like what you were just talking about. Lambic and like the Belgians make some fantastic ones. And like, it's almost like making wine. And when you look at certain types of sours, for sure, for, for sure. Certain years and they, one of my favorite styles is I always miss, I think it's called a goose, but it's a, a Belgian soured beer where they take like one, two, and three year barrels and they blend them together in certain proportions. And yeah. You just get fantastic flavors. I know one of the first like real sours I ever even tried would have been like when I was living in California at Russian River. They have a beer they make all the time. I think it's called supplication maybe because i checked on tap did they still they still make it now and so it's a brown ale that they age in oak barrels and uh add some like cherries and a couple different additives to it and i remember trying it for the first time and being like this is one of the oddest most flavorful beers do you even call this a beer anymore like you know one of the oddest (laughs) things ever and and now knowing what i know and like being part of the industry longer uh gives you no appreciation for it for sure because personally for me brewing i never worked at a place i haven't worked at a place that really focused on sours or did them naturally so there's some lactic acid additions uh secondary fermentation and that you can kind of dose it and see how sour you want to make it but you don't get any of those like natural lacto pdo characters that you do when you can add them to your kettle and and let them go so yeah and it's always fun to uh get to check out the kettle and like taste it and you're like oh my gosh all this is sour it's just so delicious love it i'm pretty sure on our one of our group members casey here had a style that goose you were talking about and said it was ridiculous he rated it super high and on tapped actually i'm pretty sure i made fun of him for it but now i kind of want to try one (laughs) (laughs) yeah if you ever see it pick it up it's definitely more of a like historic kind of traditional approach on how to make a sour beer it's a little less of the like do crazy fruits and stuff like that in your kettle style like you see now. But nonetheless, it's still fantastic. It can't, depending on what your palate is, you know, what you enjoy, it can definitely be a good beer. Yeah, he he had one called the Ages from Deschutes, and it is a, it's a Lambic 
goose. So yeah, uh, I'm definitely gonna have to try that now. Yeah, and then you'll have to see if it's worth the hype or you know if that rating make fun of was worth it. I'm sure I'll find a way to get both of those in there. <laughs> There's a true talent right there. That's a true talent. Well, we all are magical at something, and that's mine. <laughs> okay, so I'll ask the same question to you, Adam. If you could have a beer with somebody who's you know can be either dead or alive, to be and why? That's a tough question. Let's see. So I'm going to uh, I'm going to stick with someone who is alive, and I don't know if it's intentional or accidental light piggybacking with Chris in here, but I'm going to go with uh, Gary Oliver. He's the brewmaster of Brooklyn Brewing, and he uh, he's big in the brewing industry. He's also written some books. One of the ones I've enjoyed is Brewmaster's Table, but I would love to have a beer with him. He's been in the industry for a very long time. He knows a lot. He's also looked at looks at beer from a historical perspective, understanding the traditions, the things like that, but also looks at beer as a part of the culinary world. And he is someone who really thinks about his beer being paired with food. And you'll appreciate this after your earlier wine comments, but he makes the assertion that beer is better to pair with food than wine is. And it's a, a really interesting thing. And it really kind of got all my the gears in my brain turning and it kind of affected a little bit how I look at brewing beer because I try to look at it as a holistic perspective of what am I going to be enjoying this beer you know with or what am I going to be doing or the type of season or you know what um, what ingredients are in season or things like that you know looking at it almost like a chef would in terms of what do I have to work with that's fresh and local and kind of start from there instead of being like, I want to make a IPA that's going to have like a juicy pulp kind of flavor. In. So I'll go with him. I think he'd be fascinating to sit down and to get some great recipe tips from him. his Instagram. I love it because he always he'll like make recipes out of his leftovers. And I'll be sitting here thinking like, that looks better than what I was going to make for dinner after I went to the store, like for my not leftovers. But that would be uh, Garrett Oliver of Brooklyn Brewing. That would be who I would have to beer with. That's nice. A, that's an awesome. I have to look up his stuff some more. I actually do own a, a beer and food pairing book. It's not very informative, to be honest. It pairs a lot more like desserts, like really specific stuff. Like this beer goes really great with apple crumble. And it's like, what? Okay. Uh, look up the Brewmaster's Table by Garrett Oliver. Okay. Right, I hope I'm not doing a plug. It's cool because he talks about I think about flavors in terms of balance on your palate. Like I think about like if something is heavy on one part of your palate, it needs to also be heavy on the opposite side. And he talks about flavors pairing wise as harmonizing. So like thinking about like, you know, not necessarily being like, oh, this beer is a, a peach habanero IPA. Let's serve it with a peach fritter because they both have peach. He talks about, you know, just think about like what kind of flavors you're going to get. Like, what's the weight of the food? Is it sweet? What notes are you getting? And like harmonizing flavors. It's a really cool, like kind of in-depth way of looking at it that I can nerd out about for a long time. But if, you, if you're looking for something more in-depth, I definitely think he's got a cool perspective on it. Sounds great. Yeah, that sounds awesome. I guess with that, we'll wrap it up. Um, once again, a big thank you to Adam from uh, Newport Brewing and Distilling and Kristen from Foothills. I'm sure we will speak to you both again 
But until then, stay frosty, my friends. Of course, cheers. Thanks for having me. Oh,